Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 29 through chapter 30, 1 through 17, and 21 through 25. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen behind me. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamping by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the laws of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is not this David the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for years and days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines." And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of the Lord who came with you. And start, early, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, 
where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. You can be seated. Hey, I want to welcome you. For those of you that are new, uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, this is our last sermon exclusively in uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, we'll pick up the last chapter in the beginning of 2 Samuel uh, next week, Lord willing. Um, so to be honest, we're like halfway through, okay? And we've been studying 1 Samuel for 40 to 50-ish weeks. And so we come to the end um, as we are preparing for David ascending to the throne, he hasn't taken the throne as the king of Israel yet. Um, but what's interesting is what marks these last few chapters. And I hope you picked it up as Vivian read. What marks these last few chapters is this idea of war or battles, fighting, conflicts. And even in our current Christian vernacular, our words that we use, even in the song, one of the songs that we sang, one of the, the first songs that we sang about battles, we still use it, right? Battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is, is won, I believe was the line and the lyric that we sang. Uh, the victory is his. And we, we, we use all of these words, and they're right words. They're, they're true words. Our future is set. Our future, our hope is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The battle has been won. 
But when we come back to where we are living right now, and many of you are really acquainted with this, one of the things you're still facing or fighting is a battle, a tension, a, a conflict. And Ephesians um, is well aware of this, right? It's, it's, it's Ephesians 6 that, that talks about that we don't fight against flesh and blood primarily, but we fight against what? right? Rulers and authorities against these cosmic powers over the present darkness, these spiritual forces of evil at work in the heavenly realms. And, and some of you are like, yes, that's where I'm at. Others of you are like, that's, that's not where I'm at. But I, I believe that's true because the word of God says it's true. That's on display in this text. And we get to peer in through the word of God, through his Holy Spirit, inspiring these writers to see exactly how the battles are taking place in these individual lives. There's, there's three different leaders here in this scene. If you remember two weeks, well, it's been three weeks ago now since Easter, Saul in chapter 28, he's facing the Philistines. Do you remember that scene? The Philistines are mounting up there, I believe it's in Jezreel, and, and he sees them at afar, and what happens? Fear strikes Saul's heart, and he inquires of the Lord, but the Lord is what? Silent. And so Saul, in true Saul fashion, goes, I need an answer. I need an answer right now. And you remember the text? He goes and he seeks a forbidden way. The witch of Endor, the Bible says. So he sought divination. He sought to get answers from her. And, and she, she summoned, if you will, the prophet Samuel, who had passed away. This, this prophet summoned. And, and Saul seeks an answer in that avenue for his battle that he perceives that is coming. What about Achish, the Philistine king? who sees this battle that he's going to take with the Israelites, but within the Philistines, Achish, chapter 29, he has David in his countryside. He has David there with him. David has now, at chapter 29, lived with the Philistines for about a year and a half. That's where David has found home. He's been fooling the king, right? And we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us and whether David was with the Philistines because he got himself into a mess, and that's like a whole messy situation that David got himself into, or that David's actually being cunning, and he's actually helping and preventing the Israelites from being uh, you know, attacked by the Philistines. We don't know. I believe the Bible is vague in this particular instance on purpose, because it's what it's telling us is that David's situation is very, very complex. So hold on to that thought. David's situation is very complex being with the Philistines. One of the words I use to describe life is this, unexpected. I could use complex, but let's use the word unexpected. I think anybody over the age of four, right, would, would probably say alongside me, yeah, most things in my life haven't went as expected. I mean, I, mean, I mean, simple things. I mean, good things even. Being surprised by certain things. Or, or, or I, I like to say, as a, as, a, as a former baseball player, I like to say that God has two pitches, a changeup and a curveball. And we're always expecting a fastball, right, from him. But he's only got two pitches, right? He always drops the curve in on us, right? Because why? Life is unexpected. These, these, these left turns and these right turns, these weaving back and forth. This text puts on display the unexpected nature, not just of life, but of our God how our God works in unexpected ways. So there are five scenes that I want to go through. So yes, I have five points and I'll go quickly because we have a lot of text, all right? There are five scenes within these two chapters of the unexpected movement of God. And the first is from chapter 29. It's all of chapter 29 under one point. See how I did that, right? It's the unexpected deliverance of David. 
the unexpected deliverance of David. Now remember, David's situation is complex because he's with the Philistines, and Achish is like, hey, we're going to battle against the Israelites, David. I know you're a warrior. David, I know you have 600 men who like to fight, who are ready to fight. Let's go. You're going with us to go against the Israelites. And David's like, oh, wait a minute. He thinks I've been fighting against the Israelites this whole time. He thinks I've been coming against God's people, which David has not been, nor will he ever. So this is a moment where David is with Achish and he is about to be found out, right? Where the rubber meets the road. Where David's gonna be revealed for who he is, right? Loyal to God's people against the Philistines and Achish, but what Achish believes, the king of the Philistines believes that David is for him. Do you hear that? Like all over, he's like, David, you've done no wrong in my sight. He even talks about him like as an angel of the Lord, like as the angel of God, you've been so good. And David's like, oh, okay, keep talking, keep talking. How are we going to get out of this? God has a plan, an unexpected plan. Here's what happens. These Philistine lords step up that obviously have power over Achish, that Achish was the king. These Philistine lords step in and go, wait a minute, Achish, King Achish, you want to bring David with us to attack the Israelites. He's an Israelite and he's a pretty good fighter. And in fact, this same David is the one who killed our most like, you know, our, our best soldier named Goliath back in the day. Do you remember that? That's the same David. You're sure about this. And Achish is probably like, oh yeah. And they're like, we're not. He's not going with us. You see God's unexpected deliverance through the mouths of Philistine lords. They go, David. And so Achish comes to David and he goes, listen, go back to Ziklag. You're not going to battle with us. And David, I think, has to play the part. He's like, why not? You know? And they're like, listen, you're not going. You're not going with us. And so he sends all his men back. This unexpected deliverance. Um, one commentator on this text says this. Hear this. This text, meaning uh, chapter 29, of course carries no guarantee for me or you. It does not promise me that if I get my life so tangled by my own cleverness and foolishness, off track by my own short-sighted decision, that God will infallibly rescue me from my mess. What he's done for David, he may not do for me. What the text does teach is that even in our folly and fainting fits, we are still no match for our God, who has thousands of unguessable unexpected ways by which he rescues his people, even by the mouths of Philistine lords. He can make the enemy serve us as a friend. He not only prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, that's Psalm 23, by the way, but also has the knack of making the enemies prepare the table. That's what's taking place here in 1 Samuel 29, this unexpected deliverance this beautiful thing where David is removed, no power of his own, placed back in Ziklag. So let's keep going in the text. That's chapter 29. In chapter 30, that unexpected deliverance is matched by the second unexpected thing, unexpected devastation. So imagine David and his 600 men going to fight, ready to fight and do what they need to do to defend God's people. Now come back. It's a three days journey back to Ziklag where they've lived again about a year and a half. The only home they've ever known because they've been running around in the wilderness for five to seven years prior to this. Okay, they've set up shop there. They come back and what has happened? Ziklag is burned to the ground. All of their kids gone. 
all of their wives taken, everything plundered. What's going on? Like, God, you just, you just worked this amazing deliverance, right? At the mouths of the Philistines, David went back to Ziklag to find it in ruin. You ever been there? Have you ever been there in your life, maybe at, at, at the height or at a height where you're just having like this incredible spiritual moment, or maybe you've had this season of life where you're just like, the Lord feels so close to be slapped with unexpected devastation. Princess Promise, we can remember celebrating on the stage, celebrating at different events, celebrating with many of you, celebrating with the DeLeos, right? What God is doing, how he's rescuing, how he's building, what he's doing to then a week and a half ago, this utter devastation. Everything's been taken from you and given away. I remember the day, 12 years ago, April 3rd, we planted the Parks Church. And uh, that's an exciting day for a church planner. Like people showed up, right? My wife, my mom, (laughs) but people showed up. People showed up and it was was really amazing. And uh, at at that point, there, there were th- three of us who, who started the church with our, with our families, and uh, all three of those pastors, we were working uh, other jobs outside of ministry. And so we come off of Sunday, just this euphoric high, awesome day. One of the pastors, one of our founding pastors, on Monday, he walks into his job that he had in downtown Dallas. He walks in, and they look at him, and they say, you no longer have your job. Here's a box. And he tells a story, he packed everything he had in that box and he was walking down tollway to his wife's office going, God, what are you doing? Like we just had this, like, Lord, we moved here for him. We moved here from Denver. We moved our young kids here to plant this church, to start this. We stepped out in faith, right? We had this day yesterday where you just unexpectedly showed up in beautiful ways. And then on Monday morning after that, I lose my job. Or maybe you've experienced this one, um, mom, where you've just had a baby. And uh, one of this, these, these beautiful moments, and it is one of the most joyous moments when you hold that small child. But maybe it's in that moment, or maybe it's in the days or weeks or months ahead, you begin to feel something in your mind, in your heart. This lowness hit you and you can't shake it. You don't know what's going on. And then you begin to feel the weight of guilt and the weight of shame coming on you because you're like, wait, this is, this is one of the most beautiful moments, yet I feel like garbage. I don't feel joy. I feel the opposite. I feel devastated. Have you been there? You see, to say that this is difficult for David Uh, and his men is an understatement because of what the text tells us. David is devastated, his men are devastated, and they turn that devastation, that grief, that loss, that pain, his men, where do they turn that? They turn it on David. And verses five and six tell you that because it says that David was weeping, not just the loss that he had had or experienced, he also is weeping the loss because now his men, that he, his valiant soldiers that he's went to war with, now look at him and go, you're the one who got us in this mess. You're the one 
that got us to Ziklag. You're the one, listen, David, if you weren't here, I doubt the Amalekites would have even showed up potentially. And they want to stone him. And so David feels that weight and that pressure and this unexpected devastation. But verse six, the last part of verse six in chapter 30 is the key to both of these chapters. It's the key for us as well when we wade through devastation. Look at it. What does it say? You can put it on the screen behind me. And David was greatly distressed, right? For the people spoke of stoning him. Right, like, get this, David. David had dodged Saul's spear how many times? David had overcome a giant, right? The Philistines. Now think about what David's thinking. He's like, I'm gonna die at the hands of my own men. But, huge word in the scriptures. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. His God. That word, his, is so deep in meaning. David is not coming before the Lord because he has a vague sense or idea that there's a God out there and he hopes that he will deliver him. David is coming before the Lord for his strength because he is his God. It's his Lord. Look at all the Psalms David would write and the personal language between God and himself. Even when David sins, even when David falls away, even when David is not being faithful, not obedient, he still refers to God as his God. And so here in this moment of utter devastation, David is crying out to his personal God. So listen to me. You will find out real quick, real quick, if you have a living, active, vibrant relationship with God when the devastation rolls in, when unexpected things hit you and the waves of life crash against you, you're going to find out if you have a vague character of God or if it's real and rooted in who he truly is, if he's your God. Because if he's your God, the same thing David does, you will do. You will run to him and you will throw yourself upon him. Kyle, how do you know that's what David does? The word strengthened here. The word strengthened in the Hebrew, it's the word chazach. All right, just clear your throat, you said it, okay? Like, that's all it is. But the word in Hebrew, chazach, is is so deep. Like if I, if I were just to read the definition, I'd be up here reading for a while how long this definition of Hazak is. But this definition here, as David is strengthening himself, it's like this holy stubbornness that David is throwing himself before his Lord, his God, so that God in turn would give David a resolve in spite of what circumstantially is happening, that God would give him a resolve that is strengthening to his soul and to those around him. So the word hazak is not just an individual term, it's also a corporate term. So that when David knows he's coming before his Lord, it's not just strengthening him individually, but it's gonna strengthen everyone around him. And so this word it carries with it David aligning himself with the strength of God. That David, when he's struck with this devastation, goes directly to God himself. Saul, on the other hand, remember chapter 28? When he's struck with a problem, when the fear, listen, it hadn't even manifested itself, right? It was just in his imagination, meaning, okay, I can see how this can play out. Saul went to God, God was quiet, and then he was like, I gotta seek any means possible. 
And so David here goes directly to the Lord with his problem to seek God's wisdom. This is James chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to me when I say this. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is the word of the Lord. He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Praise God, right? If he's looking for fault, he ain't handing out wisdom to anybody, okay? And it will be given to him. So if you lack wisdom, what does the word of God say? Seek it. Listen, let me tell you, when we come in these moments of desperation before the Lord, more than we need answers, more than we need solutions, we need the wisdom of God. We need his wisdom, which comes by being in his presence and requesting his insight. And so David strengthening himself only happens because he's in the presence of God. And then from there, it says that he went to uh, Abiathar, the priest, and he had the priest come. These are the right channels, by the way, with the ephod so that he could seek, he could seek what God would want for him. You say, well, Kyle, yeah, again, like chapter 28, it'd be great to have an ephod, right? Right? It'd be great to know, right? Okay, this, yes or no. It'd be great to have a priest. Are you our priest? No, 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 no. Hebrews 4 tells us we have a much better priest. A much better priest than Abiathar, a much better priest than definitely standing on this stage, okay? We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who we have access to. And get this, that we draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what Hebrews 4 says. And, and one scholar puts it this way. He says, we may not get precise answers to our questions, but we will find grace to help. Mike and Leanne, the situation you're in right now, you will find grace to help you when you come to that throne, which is what we need more than answers. You see, I don't often need information, this scholar says, but what I need more than that is endurance. I don't need to know something. I only need to stay on my feet. Use your priest, he says. Use your access. It's part of strengthening yourself in God. Do you, do you understand the access you have? Do you understand the access we have this morning? You see, David's response to devastation, I think, is a really good model for us. Right? Not everything David does is a good model for us, but I think this is actually a really good model for us. And I want to go through these quickly just because this is, this is the text. The first thing David does with his devastation is that he actually feels his full emotions. For some of you, especially in some Christian circles, they kind of tell you that, that emotions are bad and just like you're like a robot. That's not how God built you or wired you. It's okay to feel your full emotions as long as you're submitting them to the Lord and to his word. It's okay for you to express those feelings. David expressed his feelings. Look at it in the text. But then look what he does. He strengthens himself in the Lord, what I just talked about. He inquires of the Lord, and then finally, he obeys the Lord's will. He does what God says because he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord is not silent like he is with Saul. He speaks to David, and what does he tell David? Because David's asking, should I pursue or not pursue? And the Lord says what? Pursue. Pursue. All right, now, let's go to the, the third segment. There's this unexpected interruption in obeying God's will. He's heard from the Lord, pursue, pursue, pursue. Now look at verses 11 through 15. And right at the beginning, they found an Egyptian. 
what an interesting thing. Like they found an agenda. So they're, they're like, okay, we're going, we're pursuing, we're running hard after them. And along their pursuit, there's this guy there. Right? I, I don't know about you. I don't know anybody who likes to be interrupted, right? Some of you handle it better than I do. I really don't like interruptions, okay? But my three kids have sanctified me a lot uh, in life. And the Lord is using that. But think about this situation. These guys, now there's only 400 of them because 200 were too weary to go. 200 stay back with the baggage. Maybe they're full of mourning. Maybe they're just too weak. They fought before. They're soldiers. They're not afraid of it. There's something going on. Those 200 stay back. We'll talk about them in just a second. But these 400 along with David, they had a mission. They had heard it from the Lord. Go pursue whoever did this. But along the way, there's this Egyptian. And it says that David's men feed him. Did you see all the things that they gave him? Figs, water. It just, I mean, they like lav- it seems like they like lavished him. This Egyptian who was left for dead, they lavished upon him. Let's be honest. Don't raise your hand. Um, how many of you would have just sprinted by this dude? Right? Like in the name of God told me to go fight this battle. God told me to pursue. I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing. I see you over there, fist bump. You all right? Let's keep going. And you would just keep going. Don't raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. Because I think that would be me. In the name of God's mission, in the name of obedience, in the name of doing God's work, I would miss this unexpected interruption, which was actually God's plan for how I would know who in the world I'm actually pursuing. There's nothing in our text to know that David knew it was the Amalekites. How did David find out who it was that that destroyed Ziklag? The divine interruption. You see, but these men, they were serving and loving this man. They were doing what God's heart is. And in turn, God was going, oh, but I'm writing a bigger story. That man who you're serving, that man who you're loving, actually is going to be a key piece of information for you, David, to know where you're going and who you're actually going after. But man, we run at a pace that is so fast, and we do it in the name of God. If we're not careful in the name of God for the sake of mission, we'll miss God's provision right there before us. Holy Spirit, slow me down to see as you see. Holy Spirit, slow us down as a community to see the people right there, the vulnerable, the hurting. Like only God can write a story like this. That this Egyptian, the Amalekites left for dead is the key in David knowing where he's going. And so David makes a pact with him and he leads them to the Amalekites. In verse 16, we see something else unexpected, but this time it's from the perspective of the Amalekites. Look at how, look at what they're doing, verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the people of Judah. Look at what they were doing. They were so unprepared for something like this because they were just enjoying their sinful lives and the plunder that they had just taken. And, and I think that 1 Samuel is very uh, um, 
purposefully writes this to describe how the Amalekites were. They were spread out all over. They were as vulnerable as you can get, eating, drinking, dancing, and just enjoying it all. And I think this is a warning to some of you. Some of you, that's where you're at. You're just enjoying this, this common grace of God. You're just enjoying this. You're eating, drinking, dancing. Be merry. The scriptures actually say something about this. Because tomorrow, the unexpected might happen. Some of you are going, you know, I know God is real. I believe God is real. Jesus, yeah, he, he did all those things. But you know what? I'll get serious about that when dot, dot, dot. When I want to, or when this happens, or when that happens. And you're living your life however you want. And let me tell you, the unexpected will happen in one of two ways. Either you will be surprised by the unexpected grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that will collide with your life. Or you will be surprised by the unexpected wrath of God. And let me tell you, that's not getting a lot of play in churches right now. But that is the reality. That is what the scriptures say. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. Live it up. Or today, you can see this. You can see the salvation of the Lord afforded to you in Christ and receive his unexpected and unearned grace and mercy today. Last one. Speaking of unexpected grace and generosity, that's on display in this text. So vividly, in verses 21 through 31, you remember those 200 that weren't able to go to battle? So these guys come back, the 400, they've just plundered, they have everything. And I love that the Bible says that, that no one was killed when the Amalekites took. So they're bringing back their children, they're bringing back their wives, but there were 200 who couldn't go. And these 400, when David is, is, is dispersing the spoils or talking about the spoils that are gonna go out, the 400, and it calls them worthless, which should key you in on, on them, right? But you're like, they took care of the Egyptian. I know, confusing, complex life, okay? They say about these 200, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. They say, give them their wives and give them their kids and send them on their way, but they're not getting any of the spoils. Think about that. While this may not be fair in a strictly economic sense, meaning they didn't work for their wages, what David is painting here is the picture of God's covenantal community. A picture that God's covenantal community recognizes that belonging is about receiving and sharing. That God's economy in his people is a different economy than the economy of the world. At times, you're on the sharing end, and at times, you're on the receiving end. Now hear me, of these 600 men, 200 that stayed back, these 200 men had fought before. This wasn't an issue of laziness. This wasn't an issue where they're just not working, right? Read the Proverbs on that one. This was an issue where they were fatigued, they were weary, they were grieved, there was something going on where those 200 men stayed with the bags and the other 400 went and fought. And those 400, they came back and they were like, they're not deserving. And David goes, wait a minute, who's deserving of this? You think you earned this battle? You think you won this battle? Look at verse 23. David understands where the victory comes from. Verse 23, but David said to those men, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. 
Where does David point to the victory? Not with the 400 or himself. He says, the Lord has done it all. And who are you to hold back what the Lord has done? And to that, they backed up. And David freely gave. And this was an ethic that King David would sit in Israel. Look at it in verse 25. And he made for it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward. He goes, this is the kind of economy we're going to have as God's covenant people. That there are going to be some days, listen to me, and this could be true of the church, there are some days where you are weak and I am strong. There are going to be some days, many days, where I'm weak and you're strong. That is why we need one another. That is why we need this, this sharing of all that we have. That's why Ephesians 2 gets everybody so excited, even though we don't really do it, but it gets everybody excited like the fellowship of the saints. Hey, we got all things together. We had all things in common. Listen, that's the way God built it. That's the way God designed his community and his economy to stand in stark contrast to the economy of the world. Everything I have has been given to me. Foundationally and primarily, my salvation. 1 Samuel 8, right back up 37 messages ago. Um, 1 Samuel 8 warns about a king. Remember Samuel giving a warning about a king? And he says, here's what that king's going to do. He's going to take, take, take. He's going to take from you. He's going to take from your kids. He's going to take from people. But here, David, what is he a king doing? Give, give. No, give it to them. Give it to the people who fought. Give it to the people who watched the bags. Give it to our neighboring nations. Give it to our friends over here. Give it, give it, give it away. Now, what do we know about David, church? David is a mere shadow of the one true king. David is a shadow of the true king. You see, David won the battle against the Amalekites he plundered his enemy and gave gifts to his people. Sound familiar? Jesus won the victory at the cross, plundered his enemy. Mark uses the language, he took over the straw, he plundered the strong man's house. He took everything that Satan had taken and he, had, he just plundered it. And he gives back to his church the gifts that only he could earn, primarily of which is the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who actually gives. He's like, what, what, what does Jesus give? Jesus gives salvation to those who are far off, who would put their faith and trust in him. But, not, but Jesus doesn't just stop there with what he gives. Jesus gives hope. For those of you that where you're at in life right now, is that the battle is pressing you on all sides. Jesus gives you hope. He gives you deliverance. He gives you, he gives you freedom. For those of you maybe battling some, something, something that's, that, that's got you just caught, Jesus is the king who wants to set you free. You say, how, how do you know that? Pull out your communion. Because Jesus is the one who gives himself 
Jesus is the king who doesn't just say, I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you deliverance. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you all these things in lip service. Even though Jesus is God, he could give you lip service. Jesus goes a step further and goes, I'm going to actually demonstrate for you all of those things. I'm going to provide for you the way in which you know salvation. The way in which you can be sure of hope and deliverance and freedom. I'm going to give you myself. And so that's why we say around here all the time, what you need more than anything else is the presence of the living God in your life. Come success or sorrow, come tragedy or triumph, come mountaintop or valley, what you need more than anything is the presence of Jesus Christ, our anchor. And so I want you to prepare to take this with me. That our king, he has a name, his name is Jesus, instituted a meal, an invitational meal for those who are far off to trust in him. For those of you that are hurting or weak or confused, those of you who think you're strong in your pride, pull up a chair and come to the table with our king whose body was broken for you, whose blood was shed for you. And so I want you to stand with me in the honor of taking this. You didn't earn this meal. You didn't earn your right to sit at the table with Jesus. He pulled the chair up for you. He made a way for you to sit at the table with him, to receive his grace and his mercy, to receive the most generous thing in the world, himself. And so he gave us a meal to remind our hearts so that we might not forget who the king of our lives truly is. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke bread, and he told his disciples, as he would tell us this morning, this is my body broken for you. Let's take the broken body of Jesus. And in that same manner, he took the cup. And this cup tells us how we gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, the only way you enter in is through my life, my shed blood for you. And so we take this cup, the cup of our salvation, remembering the only way we're received is through Jesus' death. In church, the only fitting response after taking communion is what? Worship. Okay, I'm gonna pray here in a second. Our pastors and their wives, elders, their wives, and our, our team will be down here. These men and women are here to pray with you, to pray James 1, 5 with you. Any of you lack wisdom, let's seek wisdom together. Some of you, you're hurting. Look at me. You're walking through really difficult situations. These men and women are down here to pray with you, to carry your burdens with you. Some of you, you, you 
This whole Jesus thing, it's a, it's a new conversation for you. These are the men and women who are here to pray with you, to have conversation with you. Some of you, you just put your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe not that long ago, maybe two weeks ago at Easter, maybe last week at baptism. These are the men and women to pray with you and to walk with you and point you in other directions so that we might disciple you in Jesus Christ. So let's not, let's not miss an opportunity to pray together, amen? Many of you need it. So I'm gonna pray for us. Our men and women are gonna come down here, but come join them as well. Father, I love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we have a king who is good and perfect and holy. Thank you who we have a king who stepped down into our world, into our life in the full complexity and bore the weight of our sin and our shame so that we could stand in confidence before you. And so Lord, I pray for those who need to step out in faith and pray with our, our, our leaders, Lord, that they would, that nothing would hinder them. For those who need to talk about Jesus, I pray that they would come down as well, make that first step of faith. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we might go from here living lives of faith for your glory whether it's on the mountaintop or in the valley or in that long distance in between. Lord God, we want Jesus to be clearly seen, our King. Amen and amen.